Hello and welcome to the Physician Assistant Exam Review Podcast. Even if you think you're alone, know that right now, in your earbuds, alongside you in your car, there are hundreds of other PAs reviewing right along with you. You are all busy, you've got kids, a job, and so many other responsibilities, and now you've got to get ready for this exam as well. This show is where we get together each and every week in order to help build your confidence and squeeze as much review material into your busy life as possible. Hello and welcome. My name is Brian Wallace. I'm the host here at Physician Assistant Exam Review Podcast. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. I just wanted to, I got some great emails and some great uh, reviews in iTunes. I just wanted to share real quick some of the stuff that's been coming in. Uh, I really, really appreciate all the feedback. It, it really helps keep me motivated, keep me interested, and keep me moving along. Uh, finishing psych and moving into infectious disease keeps me moving along as well. Uh, getting through psych was just incredibly painful. I'm sorry to those of you who love it and think it's fantastic. I just have always really struggled getting my head around some of the concepts and working through and muddling through it. Uh, but anyway, we're done with that. So things are, in fact, looking up for me and for the show. Um, first, I just want to say thank you to Tyler from Upstate Medical University in Central New York, class of 2016. He writes in to say thanks, Brian. We just want to say thanks for all. On behalf of the PA students here at Upstate uh, Medical University in Central New York, I'd say at least half the class is listening. So thank you so much for that. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, he's got a 45-minute commute. So wow. Um, Fantastic. Thank you so much, Tyler. Um, there was another review left in iTunes. Uh, this is an outstanding tool that helps build the knowledge and confidence for anyone who's preparing for the Take the Pants or the Pan where you're following the NCCPA Blueprint. Brian provides a plethora of information to help prepare those who are getting ready to take their exam. The podcasts were invaluable during the didactic and clinical years as I drove an hour every day to and from my clinical sites. The study tips were helpful as well, and the outlines provided on the website. I really recommend using Physician Assistant Exam Review Podcast website as well as the final step. Um, and then JCM77 writes, I never listened to podcasts ever until a classmate suggested it. We're first-year students here, and lots of us in the class actually listen to this. I personally like it because I can listen to it while commuting to school and even while cooking. I'm sort of not a big fan of the intro music. Yeah, I've, I've, I've heard that once or twice. And sometimes the intros can be a little bit long. I just want to jump into it. But honestly, I really love this podcast. Thank you so much for helping me. And he'll help clarifying what seemed complicated when it was taught in our class. Um, so I just want to say thank you for those of you who have been leaving those reviews. Uh, Lindsay says, great way to review. I used to use them to study at the end of my rotation exams for the pack rat and for the pants, which I passed. Thanks, Brian, for taking the time to write such thorough reviews. They were great to listen to on my commutes to and from my rotation. So congratulations on passing your pants, Lindsay. Our, uh, I guess that might be Lindsay. It's Linz, P-A-C. Uh, hard to tell in the iTunes names. Um, but thank you so much for all that feedback. It really does mean a lot and keeps me motivated, keeps me working hard to put this material out for you. So again, thank you all for that. Um, so anyway, in an interest of cutting things short and moving on to the information, we've been covering infectious disease. So today will be no different. We finished up with fungal infections last week. <clears throat> Excuse me. And this week we are going to jump into bacterial infections. For those of you who haven't gone over and checked it out yet, on the website, you can find a link at the top of today's notes and all the infectious disease section notes. There's a link there to the activity book I put together for infectious disease. You can go ahead and download that there. I think you just punch in your email and uh, that'll get delivered directly to you. It's just kind of a fun way to go through things. It's got some crossword puzzles, some um, 
matching stuff, just way to play with some of the terms because a lot of the terminology just gets so drowned out and you have a hard time remembering it. Uh, it's a way just to practice with those terms and make them familiar to you. So something you might want to go ahead and check out back on the website. Again, any of the infectious disease category uh, will have that link pretty prominent for you. We're going to start off with streptococcal infections. Uh, <laughs> I looked at the NCC blueprint on this and the only thing it has is acute rheumatic fever. Now, if you've been listening to the show for any length of time, you know that I am very much a big fan of cutting down to only the most important things, of making sure we skip things that don't really matter, um, the things that are hard for us to learn, the things that won't be very important on the exam. Uh, the example I use is I didn't bother to learn or memorize any of the vaccination schedules. It's not to say I don't think vaccinations are useful or important. It's to say for me to memorize that, the time involved would have been ludicrous. I don't do a good job memorizing things like that. And it, the payoff would have been very, very low. Was it going to be one question out of 300? I just didn't see it, of the value in it. So I believe strongly in cutting things out in uh, what's often referred to as the 80-20 principle, where 20% of the information, 20% of what you do will yield 80% of the results. And I believe that uh, pretty strongly. That being said, um, so I've been following the NCCA blueprint very closely, but that being said, for this section, I'm going to veer off just a little bit. And I want to just cover a little bit of strep um, and branch out more than acute rheumatic fever. I don't think it'll take us very long, but I think it's valuable uh, just in general. <laughs> I, know, I think there's, I just think you should know it, uh, regardless of what it has on the NCCA blueprint. Even if it doesn't show up, it'll take us a few minutes and we'll be through it. It's pretty easy stuff and you should know it. So we're going to start with streptococcus. Like I said, uh, things you should know, this is a gram-positive cocci in chains, catalase-positive. I actually have a pretty cool image of it up on the website. Uh, you might want to go check that out. Gram-positive cocci in chains, catalase-positive. Then we're going to just go through some of the different infections it can cause. So pharyngitis is number one. The majority of pharyngitis is caused by viral infections, not by streptococcus. Most of you have had this drill into your heads, um, and this is in fact true. The majority are caused by viral infections. Um, However, the most important bacteria in this, in for pharyngitis, is strep pyogenes, and that's what we are treating when we give antibiotics. Reasons patients present: sudden onset of sore throat, adenophagia, and fever and chills. On physical exam, they have a fever, tonsil, tonsillopharyngeal urethema. I knew I would struggle with that term when I wrote it down. Tonsillopharyngeal urethema, red throat. Uh, exudates: beefy, red, swollen uvula, tender anterior cervical lymphadenopathy and petechia on the palate are things you're looking for. The diagnosis here can be extremely difficult to distinguish between viral and bacterial just through clinical exam. Uh, really not the best way to do it. You're going to do a rapid antigen test and cultures for a uh, actual diagnosis. Treatment is antibiotic treatment should only be used for confirmed cases. Typically self-limiting, however, treatment is recommended to decrease the risk of rheumatic fever. We do penicillin for 10 days as first line, although amoxicillin tastes a whole lot better and is easier for kids to take. So they usually use about 10 days worth of amoxicillin. Uh, tends to be used a little bit more commonly probably than penicillin, even though it's the penicillin is the drug of choice here. Uh, next is scarlet fever. Strep throat with a rash, diffuse erythema. Um, this will blanch. It's fine papule, so a sandpaper rash with circumoral pallor. And <clears throat> I have a good picture of this of, of my youngest son who had it when he was about two, I think. And I didn't pick it up. My wife did, who has no medical training whatsoever. <laughs> she noticed the rash immediately. I, I'm terrible at this. Um, didn't notice at all, but it certainly was exactly as described when she pointed it out to me. Uh, it really had this fine sandpapery rash with the circumoral pallor. It was really pretty neat. Um, 
he got better and was fine. Uh, strawberry tongue with a strawberry tongue is another thing for scarlet fever. Um, so scarlet fever is really just strep throat with a rash. It's not a big deal. Uh, a lot of these things, like the childhood exanthems, uh, freak people out, and I find it inter- <laughs> very funny as I have small children and are my wife and her friends get very scared when children have things like fifth's disease uh and it turns out it's really just a virus with a rash and not you know a huge big deal yes it's contagious and yes there are downsides to it i understand all that but reality is a lot of these things just because they get names freak people out and something like scarlet fever eh, not a big deal it's strep throat with a rash cellulitis um cellulitis can certainly be caused by strep uh, it's a painful <clears throat> erythema the borders are visible but not extremely well defined Group A strep are the number one cause of cellulitis in the U.S. Treatment here is penicillin, which will be pretty much our treatment for any strep infection. Impetigo is increased risk with poor hygiene. It's golden or honey-colored crusted lesions. So again, this is on the skin. Uh, very contagious. Think about preschools is a place where this is going to go. So because you've got poor hygiene um, and a lot of skin is con- contact, that's impetigo. So golden honey-crusted lesions. I did see this once in the ER as a student, and it was a it was a patient who had some sort of psychiatric diagnosis. I'm not sure what it was, uh, but it was very clear on her face, just these yucky, uh, crusted yellow, uh, you know, <laughs> these yellow crusted lesions. Uh, the treatment here, cleaning the wounds and augmentin is going to be the drug of choice here. Erysipelas, uh, this is more superficial than cellulitis. Uh, strep pyogenes is our bug of choice. And here you may have a possible history of a sore throat, fever, malaise, and then the rash historically was on the face, but now it's much more common on the legs. It's painful, itching, burning. The diagnosis here is a clinical diagnosis. It has an extremely well-demarcated rash, which helps differentiate it from cellulitis. Is that super well-defined uh, border. There's no development of pus, but only serous fluid. And again, here we, we use penicillin for about five days. And then we want to do hydration, cold compresses, elevation of the legs to help get the swelling out of them. And then surgical debridement may be necessary here. And then the one that is, in fact, on the SECPA blueprint is acute rheumatic fever. This occurs after a strep pyogenes infection. So usually after some sort of history of strep throat. The issue with that is everybody sort of has a history of strep throat. So it gets a little bit gray in trying to determine the reality of that. But there must have been a strep infection uh, before you can develop acute rheumatic fever. Symptoms seem to begin about one to five weeks after initial infection. Common causes of cardiac issues in childhood. This may cause valve stenosis, valvular regurgitation, heart muscle damage, atrial fibrillation, and heart failure. Uh, typically, this occurs in children ages 5 to 15. Why patients present with acute rheumatic fever? It's going to be that they have a fever. <laughs> They've got painful polyarthritis, so multiple large joints affected. This is the number one complaint. Um, so I think it was hips that weren't normally affected. Uh, I don't think it's really important, but other large joints, so knees, elbows, um, ankles, these sorts of things, wrists, uh, moving around, uh, painful joints. The, the other one is chorea, which is that weird involuntary movements, uh, urethema marginatum, which is the pink ringed rash and subcutaneous nodules. On physical exam, you may find a fever. You may find that chorea. Again, you're unlikely to see that in the office, but that's something you might see. Urethema marginatum and subcutaneous nodules. These are each found in less than 10% of patients, so not really common, but certainly a hallmark of the disease. A new or changing murmur, signs of CHF, so swelling in the legs, etc., and pericarditis are things you're sort of looking for for acute rheumatic fever. Labs and studies, uh, an anti-strep test, uh, I'm sorry, an anti-streptococcal antibody test, 
Uh, there are a whole bunch of these, but this is how you determine that the patient has in fact had a uh, strep infection before. A C-reactive protein, uh, SED rate, chest X-ray, EKG, and echo, all obviously helpful because we're looking at um, cardiac manifestations here. And then as far as the diagnosis goes, this is where we get into the Jones criteria, which is obviously the easiest way to test you on acute rheumatic fever. So these are the things I'd make sure I memorized. Uh, somehow in school, I remember this being really hard and struggling a whole lot with Jones criteria. And I remember, I can't remember the book. It was a really, it was a really good book for infectious disease. I wish I could think of the name, uh, but it had a bunch of cartoons in it. And one of them I can still picture very, very clearly in my head. It was a picture that was supposed to represent John Travolta illustrating all the major uh, major criteria for diagnosing um, acute rheumatic fever. <laughs> and I can just picture it so well in my head. And I remember just feeling that the whole thing was so complicated. And I was so thankful for this picture because it was really helpful. And now I'm looking at this stuff. And years later, I'm saying, Jesus, this isn't all that complicated. I don't know why we make all of this so hard. So let me go through this with you. The patient's got to have a history of strep infection. Okay, so that's number one. They have to have a history of that. Then they need, the first way they can be diagnosed is with two major criteria for the Jones criteria. Major criteria include carditis, okay, so heart inflammation, polyarthritis, which we already said is number one presenting symptom here, so pain in their joints, chorea, which is that uh, funny, uncontrolled large muscle movements, Urethema marginatum, which is that that particular rash, and then subcutaneous nodules. So not complicated. These are the major criteria. If a patient comes in with two of them and having a history of strep infection, you can diagnose rheumatic fever. Okay, so that's the major diagnostic criteria. Not hard to understand. Carditis, polyarthritis, chorea, urethema marginatum, subcutaneous nodules. Now you have to play with some of those terms because they're not super familiar to you. Things like polyarthritis. Uh, shouldn't be hard though, because you know, many joints, carditis, not too hard. Chorea is, can be a new term and hard to remember, but it's just that funny movement. So practice that one. Urethema, urethema marginatum, same thing, a little bit difficult to remember, but that's just that rash and subcutaneous nodules, self-explanatory. Any two of those is a problem. Now they can also have one major criteria with two minor criteria for a diagnosis. So any one of those plus either a fever, or let me run through, so I'm gonna run through the minor, the minor diagnostic criteria for Jones, criteria for acute rheumatic fever. Wow, that was a mouthful. So the minor criteria include fever, arthralgia, which if you're using polyarthritis, you can't really use arthralgia, but don't worry too much about that. Previous rheumatic fever or rheumatic heart disease. Acute phase reactions. So what I mean by that is leukocytosis, elevated SED rate, elevated CRP, and then a prolonged PR interval. Okay, so fever, arthralgias, uh, history of rheumatic fever, acute phase reactions, and prolonged PR interval. So again, we either need two major criteria or one major and two minor criteria. Not super hard. You know, there have all kinds of mnemonics and things out there to memorize these. Uh, uh, I've never been a fan of mnemonics. I don't think you need one for this. I think it's, it's really, I think the mnemonics and all the junk we throw into Jones criteria make it more complicated. It's not that hard. Carditis, polyarthritis, chorea, erythema marginatum, subcutaneous nodules, or throw in fever, arthralgia, um, elevated ER, uh, ESR, CRP, or leukocytosis with a prolonged PR interval. Treatment, again, is antibiotics. We're going to try and get rid of the infection, and then we're going to use anti-inflammatories like aspirin and naproxen. So that'll wrap up strep for us for today. That's really all I wanted to cover there. We're going to just move along just a little bit further 
for today's show, we're just going to cover botulism and chlamydia along with what we've already done for strep. And then we'll move in. Uh, we'll continue with bacterial infections next week or uh, two weeks from now with the next show. Botulism, things you should know. Clostridium botulonum. This is an anaerobic organism that's important because we find uh, where we find it and how it functions. It creates a toxin which inhibits the release of acetylcholine at the neuromuscular juncture. So this creates muscles that don't work, okay? Not muscles that overwork, which is tetanus. This is muscles that don't work. So we get um, <clears throat> very weak is what this uh, <laughs> the symptoms are, weaknesses. Um, this happens in a, in a couple of major ways. The first one is infant botulism, which is usually happens between the ages of two and six months. So little, little, little kids. Um, this is your floppy baby syndrome. And one of the culprits here is thought to be honey because it can harbor the, the spores and then populate the baby's uh, intestines. So they can, toxin gets produced inside of them and bad things happen. So honey's off the list for the first year of life. Foodborne botulism. Uh, this is something where you would hear more about it. This is canned food. Again, it's an anaerobic environment, which is where these organisms live. So canned food is a, is a place you can find it. And then wo wound botulism. So if you can get a wound infected, the organism is often found in dirt. Uh, so if you get a wound that's contaminated, certainly botulism, uh, Clostridium botulinum could possibly be in there. And this can be a medical emergency and fatal. So it's something that definitely needs to be treated and reacted to pretty promptly. Signs and symptoms in an adult. First of all, patients are afebrile. Okay, they come in, they don't have a fever. They have symmetric neurologic symptoms, right? Because this is happening <clears throat> all over the place, um, blocking acetylcholine. So it's symmetric neurologic symptoms. They can get nausea, vomiting, and abdominal cramps. So those are sort of secondary symptoms. What they present with is often symptoms that that from what I, the research I came up with showed that it happened sort of in this order, which is dry mouth, diplopia, dilated pupils, facial weakness with drooping of eyelids, dysphagia or drooling, dysarthria, and then diaphragmatic paralysis. So that's where you run into issues with breathing. Okay, so they're afebrile, symmetrical neurological symptoms, nausea, vomiting, abdominal cramps. They get dry mouth, diplopia, dilated pupils, facial weaknesses, dysphagia, dysarthria, and then diaphragmatic paralysis. In an infant, they get ptosis, slow pupillary reaction, a flaccid expression, and poor anal sphincter tone is one way you can test that, the musculature. As far as a diagnosis go, again, we're looking for, for signs of symmetrical weakness or paralysis, weakening voice, drooping eyelids. Uh, we can do blood. We're going to take some blood samples. We're going to get some feces samples, uh, gastric aspiration or vomit, and wound cultures. This is all going to go off to the state labs, and then we're going to get antitoxin from uh, them through the CDC. So this is a big deal. The patient may also require breathing assistance and mechanical vent. Oh, let me just go back. Antitoxin is how we treat this, okay? Because what's happening is it's actually the toxin that um, Clostridium botulinum creates that causes this problem. So antitoxin is our answer. They may need a ventilator, and then they may also need some rehab for the muscle weakness issues. Our last one for today is going to be chlamydia. Uh, this is chlamydia trichomotis. This is the most common sexually transmitted bacteria. Somebody pointed out to me, which is great, and it's super helpful. In the in the book, The Final Step, I initially had this listed as the most common sexually transmitted disease, uh, and they pointed out to me that I think it was HPV is the most common sexually transmitted disease, whereas chlamydia still reigns for the most common sexually transmitted bacteria. Uh, so this is the most common sexually transmitted bacteria in the United States. This is the most common cause of non-gonococcal urethritis in men. In women, chlamydia can cause cervicitis, so an infection of the cervix, salpingitis, an infection of the uh, tubes, 
and pelvic inflammatory disease, PID. This is a major cause of infertility. Uh, I, I actually work with a infertility doc. Um, I, I <laughs> As most of you know, I do surgery. I'm in the OR five days a week. I work for a small community hospital where I help pretty much anybody who needs help. So there's about 50, 60 doctors a year, different doctors a year I help, one of whom is a fertility guy. And we definitely see our fair share of uh, histories of pelvic inflammatory disease with some frozen, frozen pelvises, uh, women who are not going to be able to get pregnant, secondary to a chlamydia infection years and years ago. Uh, also, interestingly enough, this was once the leading cause of blindness in the entire world uh, <laughs> through treatment of children and back, and better antibiotics. This certainly has helped, uh, but know that you can certainly get an infection of chlamydia in the eye. Signs and symptoms, most often there are no symptoms at all. Uh, I think it was like 50% of men and women won't have any symptoms. So there's definitely some recommendations for screening uh, people who are at risk. As far as what symptoms do occur in men, they get a thin watery discharge. It's less painful than gynecocal urethritis. So this is mostly for urethritis. Less painful than gynecocal urethritis. Burning and itching around the opening of the penis or the meatus. Pain and swelling around the testicles. For women, uh, abnormal vaginal discharge that may have an odor, bleeding between periods, painful periods, abdominal pain with or without raised temperature, uh, pain with intercourse, itching or burning in and around the vagina, pain with urination. Uh, you can also get what uh, the chandelier sign, which is on a bimanual uh, exam, movement of the cervix causes incredible pain to the patient. Um, it's called chandelier because they jump and want to get away from you and jump up to the chandelier. Um, this can be an indication of cervicitis or PID. So things just to consider. Labs and studies, gram stain negative. So chlamydia is a gram negative organism. Um, swab for culture and polymerase chain reactions to PCR, I think, is the way that they're pretty much doing this, especially in the ERs now. Um, you can get discharge sample from a woman is taken from her cervix, or you can swab the urethra. You can also, I think, get this from a urine sample now. I don't work in the ER. I don't treat a lot of chlamydia. Uh, but I think that's what they were telling me is they don't have to do the urethral swab on men anymore uh, in order to get the, the PCR for this. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that that's the case. Treatment. Prevention is our number one thing here. Obviously, abstinence, use of barrier protection for intercourse or fewer sexual partners. High risk, uh, multiple partners put you into a high risk category. Screening, like I talked about earlier, women under 25 who are at risk are sort of the group that is being screened now. The recommendations are wide and varied, but it doesn't hurt for OBs to be screening people on women, especially on a yearly basis, because this can really be a big deal. It has no symptoms or can have no symptoms and can cause infertility forever. So uh, some sort of screening probably makes sense. Pregnant women, we also want to be screening uh, so that we do not pass this on to children. Medications, oral antibiotics, azithromycin or doxycycline are where we start. And the other thing you need to know here is that all sexual partners must be treated. Um, it's coming from somewhere, and again, there aren't really there can be no symptoms, so everybody's got to be treated. Okay, so that wraps up our bacterial section for today. As you know, we've been wrapping up this show for a long time with study tips and review questions. So I'm going to start with the study tip for this week, and this is going to be a little bit strange. I was reading something today that was discussing confidence, and you know, if you've listened to this show for any length of time, that I think confidence plays a major role in how you do. Um, I'm starting to believe less and less in test anxiety and more and more in building confidence. And I think that this is a hugely important area for anybody in school, anyone who has to take any kind of major exam. And confidence on test day, confidence throughout your study process, all of these things really play a big role. 
so anyway, what I was <laughs> I was reading today was it was this gentleman was writing about uh, the clothes you wear and your outside appearance and how it changes your perspective and how your respect for yourself increases uh, your confidence. And through wearing specific clothes, and he was talking more about nicer clothes and better things uh, to boost your confidence. And it can seem kind of silly, and I and I get that. But I also think it plays a big role. And how it can play a role here, and as I, <laughs> as I was thinking about this, I realized that hanging in my closet is a very particular shirt that I wore for every major exam during PA school. Now, I graduated from PA school in 2007. We're now in 2015. That shirt is still hanging in my closet. I wore it to my pants, and I wore it to my panry. I swore to my wife I'd throw it out after the after I passed my panry, uh, but it's still hanging in my closet. It's not particularly nice, and that's why she wants me to get rid of it. It's a long sleeve. It's basically a long sleeve hooded T-shirt. Um, it's a little bit heavier duty, but it's essentially what it is. And that was my test taking shirt. That was the, the the shirt that I wore for every major exam. It brought me confidence. I can't tell you why. I know it doesn't make any actual sense. Um, I'm not very superstitious. In fact, I'm not superstitious at all. I played baseball for years with people who would, you know, not step on the lines, uh, had all sorts of rituals, pregame, whatever. I bought into it a little bit. I always, I guess I always wore the same undershirt throughout the baseball season. So I did have that. It was a long sleeve shirt as well. I don't know what it is about that. But regardless, there are certain things we do, certain routines we build in that help us build confidence. One of the things I always did throughout PA school was I listened to a particular type of music and I wore that shirt. And I couldn't get this out of my head as I was reading this today that although I almost thought I didn't buy into it until I realized that this is something I'd been doing for years. I was getting confidence by wearing my testing shirt. It's the same thing when you go in for an interview and you wear a nice suit that you just bought for that interview versus the old suit you've had for five or 10 years hanging in your closet that hasn't even been pressed. You feel differently when you walk in the room. Now, to me, it doesn't necessarily matter for your exam what you wear, but I think it does matter that you think about it, that it's not a that morning decision. I think it matters that you feel good about yourself in whatever it is, that it brings you confidence, and that you feel happy. I just think that it makes a difference. I, I, I'm telling you it makes a difference for me, and I think it'll make a difference for you. All right, enough of that. Let's move on to the review questions. Um, when I give the term strawberry tongue, what do you think? What's the def- what's, what comes to mind? Strawberry tongue. Scarlet fever should come to mind. Scarlet fever. Describe Korea. Korea. Korea? Korea? It's involuntary large muscle movements. A skin infection with extremely clear margins. Is this cellulitis or erysipelas? Erysipelas. Here's a tough one, especially in audio format. List all, and just in your head, you can't write them down. List all five major Jones criteria. List all five major Jones criteria. All five. No mnemonics. Carditis. Polyarthritis. Chorea. Erythema marginatum. And subcutaneous nodules. It's easy for me. I just read them off the list. <laughs> so, carditis, polyarteritis, chorea, erythema marginatum, subcutaneous nodules. 
Is chlamydia gram-positive or negative? Is chlamydia gram-positive or gram-negative? Chlamydia is gram-negative. All right, so that wraps up the show to the day. We're running a little bit long, getting close to the 30-minute mark. Uh, thank you for sticking with us. Thank you for hanging around. Um, uh, the infectious disease stuff will finish up next week. Uh, not infectious disease, but bacterial stuff will finish up next week. Uh, hopefully, we'll we'll complete that section and we'll keep marching through infectious disease. We're getting really close to the end of the blueprint, so that's great. We're also getting really close to episode 100, which is astounding and amazing. Uh, so if you've been with me for a while, if you listen to a lot of the episodes, if you listen to most of the episodes, I've had people tell me to listen to them all twice, which is mind-boggling. Uh, thank you so much for all of that. Um, as I said in the beginning, I really do appreciate the reviews on iTunes, really do appreciate the emails. Keep sending those in, keep um, posting those on iTunes, keep posting on the website. I really do appreciate all of that. Again, the Infectious Disease Activity Book is available to you. Just go check out the website. You will find all the links under Infectious Disease, uh, under the category for Infectious Disease, any of those posts. You'll be able to find it nice and easy there. No big deal. So please go back and go ahead and uh, check that out. Anyway, that's it for this week. Take care. Good luck anybody taking your exam this week. Good luck to you. And please, please, please write in, share with us your results, good or bad. We'd love to hear them and uh, celebrate with you or be sad with you, one or the other. Uh, good luck. Take care. See you in two weeks.